Hello and welcome to the Body Electric Podcast. My name's Nathan Hiltz and I'm the host of this podcast. It's been too long, it's been a long time, and you know, every time I record one of these episodes I feel like I say the same thing, uh, but this time I got a really good excuse. It's a big pandemic, so yeah. I hope everyone's okay out there, I hope all you guitar players are keeping busy and feeling lucky that uh, you play an instrument that works well as a solo instrument. Because I'll tell you, I think that there's some flute and saxophone players out there that are really bored. Or maybe they're not bored. I mean, you know, it's a great time to practice and be in the shed. I know that I've had the conversation a million times with somebody where I'm like, Oh, I'm so busy with gigs and teaching. I can't practice at all. You know, well, we've got no excuse right now. So uh, I hope you've been in the shed and I hope you've been getting a lot out of it. And uh, yeah, okay. So for this episode of The Body Electric, I have the great Roy Patterson killing guitarist uh he's much like me from nova scotia originally and uh in his late teens he moved to toronto to play jazz because this is a great place to play jazz and uh you know uh so good to get to know him a bit better sit down for an hour well you know we did it online uh this was the very first online virtual body electric podcast so many thanks to adrian cho and the good people at syncspace.live who uh, enabled us to uh, do this with low latency. Uh, it's much appreciated. Um, and yeah, okay, so we're going to get right on to the show. Uh, you want to know more about me, go to NathanHiltz.com or better yet, go to SamwaysTheBand.com, S-A-M-W-A-Y-S, uh, TheBand.com. And that's my passion uh, choral music project of the moment. Uh, and we're releasing a new record. It's out right now on all the streaming platforms. Okay, so here's my chat with the great Roy Patterson. Hey, Roy, how's it going? It's going great, Nathan. <laughs> nice to see and hear you. Well, it's nice to be here. It was uh, kind of strange times, as you know, hunkered down and just trying to make the best of it, waiting for it to end. Absolutely, me too, me too. And, uh, you know, just so glad to see another guitar player in the flesh, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, uh, yeah. So this is you know my podcast, and we're basically just going to talk about some different things about you and the guitar. So um, uh, I just wanted to start by maybe asking you uh, about how you grew up playing music. Um, I happened upon your blog, and I noticed this beautiful story about uh, a redwood guitar. <laughs> and uh, and so uh, did you grow up in Nova Scotia learning guitar? Well, I I grew up in a rural area and my nearest neighbor was half a mile and the town was six miles away so <clears throat> we were pretty not really isolated but you know it was uh, uh, all the music that I heard as a child was basically at home and um, there was uh, we had a radio in the house and it was on pretty much all the time and, uh, but at that time, the music that was played on the radio was quite uh, varied. And, uh, and in that particular area of Nova Scotia, the local radio stations uh, played a lot of country music. And uh, so I heard, uh, you know, a lot of Bakersfield stuff for some reason. I think one of the local DJs must have really liked uh, Buck Owens and Merle Haggard and those guys because he played that stuff all the time. And um, there was a show called uh, Hal's Corral, and the uh, the host of the show 
his name was Hal Sporel. And uh, so he introduced the show every day with, it's Hal Sporel with Hal's Corral. <laughs> and he played country music. And so I heard that every night, you know, at dinner, at supper time for, you know, I don't know how many years. And then the music that was played, aside from the country music, it was, uh, you know, the hit parade, but it was varied, uh, you know, compared to today. They played everything from, you know, Chubby Checker and uh, Harry Belafonte to Perry Como and, you know, it was just Ray Charles. And so even the, the top 40 hits were really varied. Mm. You know, you'd have... Uh, Harry Belafonte, he had a hit called uh, Jamaica Farewell. Mm. And then right after that, they might play uh, Georgia by Ray Charles. Mm. You know, so it was, it, the music that I heard was really uh, varied. It, it was like the whole spectrum of popular music just right. on the radio. Right. And uh, I went to one room schoolhouse till about the end of grade four. So I think at some point, maybe it was grade one, I remember my parents took me over to uh, to the school for a musical show, and there was just there were just some local people playing and singing country music, Hank Williams tunes, Hank Snow tunes, things like that. And that was the first time I ever really heard uh, a guitar live. Mm. And the thing that really impressed me about it was the sound of it. It just more than anything else, and it, it really uh, intrigued me. What, what town were you in, Roy? I was, uh, well, the village was called South Alton. It was about six miles outside of a town called Kentville. Yeah, okay. And uh, so near the Annapolis Valley, not right. too far from uh, Woolfield, where Cadia University is. Right, right. I, I'm Ludenberg, right? Oh, okay. Ludenberg and Halifax, so. Right. But, uh, you know, I, I'm similar. Like, I, I actually didn't see many guitars until I was like 11, like 10 or 11 or something. You know, at a like a, a folk festival in Lunenburg. Right. But it, you know, people have this idea that Nova Scotia just there's fiddles on every corner, <laughs> you know, and to, you know step dancers and all that stuff. But that's not really the truth. I, I right. at least in my upbringing, you know. Well, when I was there, there wasn't a whole lot going on outside of the cities. Uh, when I got into my teenage years and actually got a guitar, I was probably like about thirteen or fourteen. <clears throat> At that time, there were a lot of, in the town, there were a lot of uh, basement bands. Like, it seemed like everybody I knew played in some kind of band. Cool. And uh, I was in grade five when the Beatles came over. And then I remember hearing Jimi Hendrix on that radio. Because I, I would spend quite a bit of time on the radio just dialing through the, the shortwave bands because it had a shortwave band and I, I would pick up all kinds of music from I'd, like somewhere in some part of the world that I didn't know but different instruments you know like probably East Indian music and Caribbean music everything mm. on these shortwave bands and then one night I just I don't know if it came from England or what but it was this guitar and I'd never heard anything like that it was amazing and it was Jimi Hendrix it was either Purple Haze or uh, you know one of those tunes that is early hits and uh, you know it was around that time that I really did 
get interested in playing and, and I really wanted to play in a band. So I think when I was 14, uh, I had been hanging out in Cantville. I'd hitchhike into town and uh, there was a house, the Pinio's house, and there were all these musicians hanging out there. And Kenny Pinio was a drummer. And so my first gig was, uh, I was 14 or maybe 15, and it was just Kenny Pinio and drums and uh, a bass player and myself. And we went and played at a, a mental hospital. And that was my first gig, and that was really, uh, for me, kind of the beginning of just, it, it established something that had never really, it's never really changed. I mean, that's all, <laughs> that's all I've ever really wanted to do. Since then, you know, even though I've done other things, I've had other jobs here and there, but it was it was always just to facilitate somehow getting to a point where I could play all the time. Mm. And uh, there were a few good players around. Uh, there was a guy named Bubsy Brown, who was a, a really experienced uh, senior guitar player. Mm. And Dutchy Mason was around. Wow! And I actually wound up. I knew Dutchy because he was hanging around Kentville a lot and doing gigs in the area, and uh, Kenny, the drummer I mentioned, had done some playing with Dutchie. So I, I got to play a few gigs with Dutchie later on, in my later teens, and, but he was the first guy, I remember it, at the, I was at the Pinio's house, and I was sitting on the couch next to Dutchie, and he was playing Georgia on the guitar, and that was the first time I'd ever heard jazz chords on the guitar mm. and it really I was just amazed at it it, it kind of it was a mystifying you know I had no idea what he was doing wow Cause that's the, so cool was he playing like a solo thing or was he singing or I think he was probably singing I can't remember yeah yeah, yeah. I mean he wasn't a, a jazz guitar player he didn't have a lot of facility he was a blues player yeah but he knew he knew some tunes he probably singing over it yeah mm. and um so, I mean, that's really how I got started, you know, and that, that was, they were, I, I used to th kind of feel bad because I didn't have music, music lessons as a child, and I, uh, for some reason I always had this idea that I didn't have a musical background, but then when I think back, there was music in the house all the time, mm. either on the radio, uh, even the TV, I think when I... We got a black and white TV. I was probably about five years old or something, maybe two or three channels. But there was music on the t television a lot mm. of the time. And uh, at the Ed Sullivan show, I remember that because I saw these jazz players on there. Dizzy mm. Gillespie used to be on there. And uh, I think Lionel Hampton was on once. And, uh, you know, I didn't know it was jazz music, but I knew that there was something different about those guys <laughs> yeah yeah and did you like uh when did you start writing music um i think of well i remember writing somewhere actually i have a tune i wrote back in the 70s and i kind of saved it just <laughs> the chord symbol notation is just really stupid <laughs> okay <laughs> but it had this little melody you know and um but I came, when I finally came to Toronto in 1978, uh, I, I'd had, I'd done some playing around the Maritimes and in Newfoundland in uh, dance bands, mostly. Mm. Either 
bands playing hit parade stuff or uh, at that time there were a lot of uh, there's a lot of funk music and rhythm and blues like oh, yeah. Tower so Power. What age was that? You were you're playing like kind of events and dances and so yeah. And so I guess eighteen, nineteen, twenty, around there, and we'd go to Newfoundland quite a bit. And uh, at that time, every town in Newfoundland had at least two clubs. So you play a whole week in each town. So you could go over for six weeks and do these tours. Huh. And uh, we'd play like Average White Band, Tower Power, uh, Steely Dan, you know, that kind of stuff. Wow. And, um, and I, I was really interested in jazz. I didn't know how to do it. But I would convince the guys to do these send-offs, these instrumental send-offs that would be these jazz tunes. Mm. And I didn't know how to improvise on them or anything, but, you know kind of snuck those in and uh wow what a great experience for an 18 19 year old to go around and work in all, all these different places and play for different people i mean that's amazing right well in hindsight you know i used to belittle it because it was you know you're just playing stuff that was on the radio but that's in, great stuff though i mean that's, it was yeah, yeah i mean it was it was good and the thing about it was i got to play with other musicians and and i playing especially the funkier stuff kind of learn how to lock in with the rhythm section a bit. And so, you know, it was good for that. And also in the house, my sister was, uh, she studied piano, classical piano. So she was always playing classical pieces. And then my mom sort of taught herself to, to play the piano. She would read through these classical pieces. And dad would occasionally, when he was in a good mood, uh, play the harmonica. And he'd play these old-time tunes like, uh, you know, Red River Valley or mm -hmm. Cape Breton folk songs. Or uh, I mean, I actually <clears throat> recorded one of them called Sweet Betsy from Pike that he recorded, an old frontier tune. So, you know, in, in hindsight, I thought, well, actually, you know, I, no, I didn't get to go to Berkeley School of Music and all that after high school, but I still did have some kind of uh, musical environment. Mm. Yeah, so mm. so I don't, you know, like I said, I used to kind of belittle it, but in hindsight, I think it was actually a pretty, pretty okay. Mm. Cool, cool. Well, before we move on, I think I'd like to just play something with you. Um, to those of you listening to us, uh, me and Roy aren't together. Uh, we are both at our own homes, socially distanced for COVID, and uh, we're using a platform called SyncSpace, uh, which is a low-latency um, chatting client for musicians to, uh, to tr play together these days. So, um, you know, we hope that it's all synced up properly. It should be. I hope it is. <laughs> and uh, what do you feel like playing, Roy? Oh boy, it's been so long since I've done a gig. <clears throat> you said Georgia a couple times, and I kind of feel like playing Georgia. I don't know, but. Yeah, I could give it a shot. We might not agree on the changes because there are a number of ways of getting through that one, but I could certainly give it a shot. Well, it's, you know, we, it, it is a guitar uh, technique kind of guitar podcast, so, I mean, uh, what changes do you play? Well, uh, what key? I usually do an E flat. Okay. Seven C minor. Okay, then, first uh, time you go there. Ace, uh, mm -hmm. And then I go A flat minor after that. Okay. 
Yeah, all right. so all that part's pretty standard. I think in the bridge is where they have some variations. So I go uh, to F minor, is that what you do? Or? Yeah. And then C minor, where do you go after that? A flat seven. Okay. Back to C minor. F minor to C minor, F7. Give it a shot. All right, let's give it a try. Okay. You got the melody or you want me to try it? Oh, you you take it. Okay, I'll do my best. Your tempo too. Like a ballad? Yeah. Two, three, four. <laughs>
I got ahead of you a couple of times. <laughs> oh no, that's probably the internet, right? <laughs> yeah, it kind of, I thought I knew where it was and then there was like a little glitch and I thought, oh, gee, <laughs> on <Yeah>. my head. <laughs> yeah. Close enough though, it still feels really good. <laughs> Beautiful sound, Roy. Yeah. Oh, thanks, yeah, I've just, I've been playing this Telecaster lately. Mm. You were mentioning the... Wrist, oh, that that's wrist. the one. Yeah, I just... Uh, the house I grew up in was really old. It was at least 200 years old. And uh, the people that built it, uh, I think their name was Caldwell. And oh, yeah. uh, they were on their way to the States uh, from Fermanagh, Ireland. And they got shipwrecked off of uh, Cape Blomidon, which was, back then it was called Cape Blomidown. I guess a lot of ships went down off there. Oh, my. And uh, so anyway, they were just stuck there and uh, uh, they, one of the Caldwells bought this piece of land and built the homestead. So the great, I think the great granddaughter uh, came to the house one day. She was doing her family history and, and gave us the whole story. She was uh, from the States and um, for some reason dad was always tearing the house apart and renovating and, and I kept asking him to save some of the boards because it had these wonderful wide uh, old growth red spruce boards on the floors and even the walls but he would always throw them out so I I put some aside in one of the barns and then uh, you know I, I long since moved away from home but uh, the roof of one of the barns basically rotted out and water got in so most of the lumber I put in there rotted but I was able to salvage just enough for a Telecaster body. And uh, 
my friend uh, Joe Yanazello, who's a great guitar builder, he put it together for me. So mm. this is the last of the old homestead. <laughs> wow, what a special, special thing. And if you guys go to RoyPatterson.com, you've got a very beautiful recording of you playing that guitar. Oh, thanks. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's really special. Yeah, and I, I like it. I've just I've been trying to kind of change the way I play. Because I always played, or mostly played arch tops. Um, and uh, <clears throat> so I, I found with the Telecaster, it, it, you know, if I do the same stuff on it that I do on the arch top, it sounds, it sounds kind of funny. Mm, and yeah. in the Telecaster, I'm still getting used to it. it I find it, it's both delicate, but at the same time, you have to put something into it to get something out of it. Mm. So it, it, it is kind of enabling me a little bit to uh, uh, play a little differently. Yeah, there's and things that are easier and things that are harder, I'd say. Yeah, that's yeah. a good way of putting it. So was it jazz that brought you to Toronto? Yeah, um, well, I, I had wanted to play this music, but there was no one, at that time, there was no one around uh, that I knew in Nova Scotia who could help um, there was a bass player who moved to the area near me, and I did become friends with him. He was an older, older than me, and uh, he had played in London, England, and was on the Toronto scene for quite a few years, and then moved to Nova Scotia. So I got to know him, but he was real old school, and uh, I try and ask him about something, and he, he would just sort of <laughs> say, "Well." I, if you don't know all the tunes, you've got no business being on the bandstand, do you? Oh, okay. <laughs> so, so I was kind of like afraid, you know, to, to do anything. <laughs> I, I did years later when he moved back to Toronto and I sort of started to do some gigs on the scene. I did wind, wind up doing a few gigs with him, but, but at the time it was no help. And then there was a guy in Halifax named Bucky Adams who was a really great uh, sort of bluesy jazz saxophone player out of, I guess, more of the Stanley Turrentine kind of school of playing. Yeah, of course. Very well-known guy yeah. around those parts. Yeah. And he was great. I'd get wind of him playing once in a while in Halifax, so I'd hitchhike in to hear him play. But, you know, it, there was no one you could go up to and say, how do you do this, you know? Mm. And uh, I'd heard of a guitar teacher, and I hitchhiked in to to Halifax to try and see if he would give me some lessons and uh, for some reason he just didn't really, uh, he made me feel really bad. <laughs> oh, Yeah, he know. just, uh, I don't know what it was, but anyway, that, that, was, that was that. So I had a couple of friends that I met on the road, mostly we'd run into each other in Newfoundland because they would be over there with another band and sometimes we'd cross paths and uh, Mark McCarron, who you might know, great guitar player. From, no, I don't. Yeah, Mark is originally from St. John, I think, or New Brunswick, anyway. And he's one of my favorite guitar players, really great player. And uh, he's been living in New York for a long time now. But he was he was a guitar player and a guy named Chris Chawley, who's around the Toronto area, sax player. Mm -hmm. So they came up to Toronto and they kept sending me letters and saying, hey, man, you should come up, come on up, you know, I'll introduce you to some people. And I guess I was just <clears throat> kind of scared at the time. So it took a couple of years to get up enough courage to make the move. And then finally I said, that's it, I'm going. And uh, 
So I came up and um, York University had a summer jazz program at the time mm. where you could go and play every day, well, five days a week for six weeks. You play like all day. Six weeks? Yeah, it was a six-week program and you played five days a week like all day. And um, Why don't we have that anymore? That's yeah, an amazing was, program. Oh, it was great. Yeah. And uh, so I did that, but I... When I went the first day, like I, I knew, <laughs> this is kind of a funny story. Uh, I kind of knew some jazz chords, and I, I'd listened to a lot of jazz because, you know, I had a, I be, became friends with this guy who had a jazz collection in Kentville, and he played me all the, the classic records, you know, Coltrane and West Montgomery and Bill Evans and all that. So I, I kind of knew what it sounded like, and I knew some of these Mickey Baker chords. We had these Mickey Baker books. I don't know if you... Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm aware of those. I yeah. had those. Yeah. Those kind of things. Mm -hmm. And I could... So I could play some jazz chords, like on tunes, and I could sing over the tunes, like improvise with my voice, and then I'd work out what I sang, and then I recorded it, and I sent it up as an audition tape. So it kind of sounded like I could play, but really I couldn't. <laughs> hmm. So I found, first day I went to this workshop, there were people reading Charlie Parker tunes and improvising on stuff they'd never seen before, and I just, I couldn't do it. So I, I went to John Gittins, the head of the program, and I said, I, I can't do this. So he said, that's fine, just, you know, come back, come back and see us next year. So I, I got a teacher, and fortunately it was a good teacher, uh, Howard Spring, hmm. who had already been through York, and uh, Howard was a good guitar player, and he just completely demystified the process for me, taught me harmony, taught me voicing, and uh, <clears throat> so I, you know, that was that was a godsend. Just meeting Howard and having those lessons, and uh, so you stuck around Toronto and studied with him here. Yeah, yeah. I I had some money because I had saved up some money from working on uh, gypsum boats out of Nova Scotia. I took a job as a seaman, and uh, so I just for the first year I just practiced like, uh, you know, like six eight hours a day. You're so glad to be off those boats that you <laughs> you're just gonna play guitar all day then. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> And, uh, yeah, so then, um, then I went back to York the following year. I, I think I, I started doing gigs in country bands along Queen Street. There used to be a country circuit. And uh, so I remember doing those. I had a room in Chinatown for, I think it was 100 bucks a month rent. And the bands played six nights in a matinee, paid $120. <laughs> Okay, that math sounds pretty sound to me. Pretty yeah, good, pretty good math. And yeah. you could eat in Chinatown for three fifty. You get a big plate of rice and all this stuff on it. So sure, in the market, right? You could probably get your vegetables. Yeah, there. all yeah. that. And uh, so uh, that was that was my uh, sort of first uh, the first time I had an opportunity to really study music mm. with somebody and practice. And then, you know, playing sessions with other people you'd meet at the school or whatever. Everybody played sessions back then, you know. So even even though we weren't playing gigs yet, we'd always play sessions at other people's houses. And, mm. Mm. Yeah. So yeah, so I did come to Toronto to answer your question. Yeah. Uh, for uh, for jazz music in in particular. Mm. Yeah. I'll tell you, my first encounter with you was uh, I I may have told this before uh, coming to the Humber Summer Workshop 
1996 when oh. I was 16 years old. Oh, wow. And you were teaching guitar there. Huh. And, uh, you know, you taught a clinic on chords up to the 13th and what all that meant. And uh, I, I still remember you at the whiteboard <laughs> teaching that. And, you know, that was a big moment for me coming oh. from Nova Scotia because I was 16 and my parents allowed me to come up here with a couple of my buddies and stay on a on a guy's couch, basically. Wow. And go to Humber every day to play. And, wow. uh, you know, of course, I had to be, become a musician after that. Like, But, uh, yeah, seeing you play there, I mean, you had a profound effect on me. And, uh, wow. Yeah, man, and uh, yeah. Anyway, thought I'd share that with you. Well, well, well. Thanks. Well, that that theory stuff. Uh, Howard taught me that, and then later I studied with John Gittins at York, who was a, you know, he was a good piano player and a social scientist, but also a music theorist, just because he loved music theory. But <clears throat> but Howard was the first guy to teach me about harmony, and he said, you know, chords come chords come from scales. Here's the first chord, you know, one, three, five, seven, nine, eleven, thirteen. Careful with the eleventh. And he explained all that. And then uh, John uh, was talking a lot about functional harmony. And uh, <coughs> excuse me. And he referred me to a book by uh, Dr. Hugo Riemann, who was doctor of musical sciences at Leipzig in Germany. I think maybe in the 1800s. Hmm. And um, he had written a book called Harmony Simplified. And um, John's, because I'd gone to John and I said, I, well, I want to understand more about this functional harmony, but I'm not getting the big picture. And so he, he referred me to that book. I went to the uh, Metro, Metropolitan Toronto Library and they had it in microfiche. So the book itself was in German, but the preface. Uh, was in had been translated into English, so he said if if you can get through the preface, you you kind of got it because he explains everything in there, and he said, uh, and this is coming right out of the you know European classical tradition, uh, he said there were only three harmonic functions: there's tonic, subdominant, and dominant, and then he proceeded to generate all the chords and categorize them under these three headings, and I thought yeah that's like the way jazz players think, mm -hmm. you know. So that was, uh, so I encountered that, because I, I do teach, and I, I uh, encounter a lot of students that don't, for some reason, they never get the big picture of the chords. You know, they, they still have this very segmented view of, of the chords. So I try and just say, look, the chord is one through, you know, all the way up to the 13th, every chord. Mm. And then you have the option of voicing that however you want. You know, maybe it's a triad, maybe it's, uh, you know, if you want a more Brazilian kind of sound, you emphasize the six and the nine, or if it's a jazzier thing, maybe you put alterations on the dominance. You know, you can do all that, but mm. the, those are just different ways of representing the, the full chord. Mm. And I guess, is harmony something you really like to explore with, uh, with the music that you create? Uh, well, it was for a while. Um, when I was recording, some of the early recordings I did, <clears throat> I was writing stuff that was influenced by people like Richie Byrack and uh, Kenny Wheeler, uh, you know, s sort of a lot of color in the chords, especially on the tonics, you know, you get
get like maybe. kind of evocative sounds. A lot of European uh, musicians seem to use those mm. on the ECM records. And, but um, several years ago, I, for some reason, I, I just started hearing things that were much simpler, like folk tunes and country tunes and stuff, and, and just snippets of stuff. And I, I wasn't quite sure where it was coming from. And uh, then I realized it was maybe stuff I heard when I was a little kid, just kind of, <laughs> you know, bubbling up through the subconscious. Mm. And so I, I put this band together to, to play some real simple things. And uh, I found just going back to playing tunes with three chords in them, triads, really challenging. Mm. And I thought, oh, okay, so I need to go way inside this. I, it's, I can't, you know, obviously, as jazz players, we can play over chord changes, mm. but that they it just didn't work with those tunes. So. I, I find I run out. You that's run out. I, I run out. That's what happens to me. Like on stuff that's simple. Oh yeah. I can't get inside, as you say. I can't kind of. I can't enter the moment. I'm sort of stumped by the how open it is. Yeah. I, I don't know how. It's kind of hard to explain. It but, is. It really yeah. threw me and. Uh, so just, we, in fact, that tune I mentioned, Sweet Betsy from Pike, we did it like a, kind of a slow waltz. Usually you hear it like, you know, you hear it like that. We did it like, uh, you know, with pedal steel in the background. So just playing something as simple as that and then trying to improvise on it in a way where you're trying to expand it more from the inside instead of playing over it, I, I found that really challenging. Mm. And I'm still trying to work on that stuff. And mm. so I'm trying to, I'm, you know, I mentioned I was trying to change the way I play. So just going back to working on triads like... Um, Open open voice triads, like two octave open voice triads, you know, uh, I don't know, something. Those kind of sounds. And then taking from a chord, maybe taking two notes of the chord instead of playing the whole chord. Like, a, say if you have a tune like, um, uh, let's see. So it's how deep is the ocean? You know, that's a fairly conventional approach to it. So I'm trying to take just a couple of notes from the chords. Mm -hmm. Thank you. 
So if you take, uh, for example, on the C minor, so I've got the root G, uh, C, and then I have G, E flat. And then taking just the two notes and inverting it, so G flat becomes E flat G. And then you can move either the top voice or the bottom voice around. So and then the D7, you'd have like the, say the third and the flat nine, so F sharp and uh, uh, E flat. So that would become E flat and F sharp. It's very melodic. It almost sounds like two melodies. Really. Yeah, it, it's more of a contrapuntal kind of a thing. And it's, yet it's very full. Yeah, and so I'm kind of interested in that because I think it's less um, uh, stylistically specific, I guess would be the word. You know, I'm, I guess my goal is to be able to play any kind of tune, like even a pop tune or, or a country tune or, or a jazz tune, mm. and, and have it sound appropriate somehow. Mm. Do you feel like you get labeled at all? Well, <laughs> yeah. Um, it's funny, when I tried to sort of step outside the jazz world, um, I, w I would meet, like I play with a pedal steel player, you know, and met some other people and they would always introduce me as uh, as a jazz player <laughs> and then once people hear that they kind of <laughs> you can see the <laughs> you can see the switch you know they just look at you and go oh uh, and that's it you know they will never uh, call me for a gig or ask me to play with them or you, you know because they think we're going to go in and just you know I don't know what they think but yeah. I hate that I, I do I, I do. hate that yeah <laughs> I feel like it happens both both sides though like I think jazz players can reject non-jazz musicians and sure non-jazz players like can ask you you went to music school didn't you people yeah. say that to me <laughs> or you know I, I kind of I've been, I've been into like ergonomic like holding the guitar on my left leg oh yeah so guys like to come up to me and say you studied classical didn't you <laughs> you know and uh, I never I didn't right like so right it's like yeah yeah. Yeah. So oh, are you man. are you actually practicing classical guitar? I am. Yeah. Hmm. Well, uh, for the last five six years, I have been. Oh, okay. You know? But uh, back when I was younger, I never did. You know? Right. Yeah. 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 Really love classical guitar, especially. Um, well, since my daughter had a daughter, um, you know, so time at home solo guitar seems to make sense. And, right. Yeah. And pandemic even more so. Yeah. 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 It's nice. I. Um, uh, just as an anecdotal thing, I, I'm always kind of struggling with my nails. Uh, uh, if I, I, for a while, I was trying to learn to play the steel string, like some finger picking stuff, and it oh, would just chew, good. chew my nails up, you know. Not good. Yeah. So I talked to a couple of people who actually cut their nails off. They said, "I'm, I'm sick of it. I'm, I'm over that. I just play with the flash, and I got some calluses, and, and it sounds fine." And then, um, I guess it was on YouTube. I there's a guy's a he's a classical guitar player mm. and he plays lute and you know classical guitar and he cut his nails off right like Terega, right right that's at he the mentioned end of his, that. the end of his life he decided he didn't want to play with nails anymore right yeah i would have liked to have traveled back in time and hear him say hear him play alumbra with no nails <laughs> i'd really like to hear him do that and apparently like you know his 
his students continued to do that for a little while too. Really? Yeah, yeah. But Segovia was like, yeah, this, this sounds like not good. Right. <laughs> yeah. So I I haven't gotten up the courage yet to do it. I mean, sometimes you know you, you break a nail, and this is another reason why I'm really tempted to to try and learn to not use them is because if I break a nail just before a gig or something, even though I'm not playing classical guitar, I, I feel like I'm at a disadvantage, you know, mm. it's a handicap there. Yeah, it's it, the worst. It's distracting. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so, well, man, I think it, it can sound beautiful. Yeah, I well, think you can do it. He, uh, this guy on YouTube, he also did some experimenting. He put gut strings on his classical. Mm. And he, uh, yeah, he said he really liked the sound of them. Mm. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so let's um, let's play another tune. Okay, I'll give it a shot. I'll try and pay more attention to the what's coming through the phones. Or yeah, <laughs> don't pay too much attention. <laughs> uh, does how deep is the ocean feel good? Oh yeah. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. We're going to agree on the changes on that first ending. Oh ambient? gosh. Yeah, of course. Uh, um, well, I'll tell you what I play. It's it's quite a simple version. So I go. E flat seven, then A flat seven, and then I just go B seven, and then chromatically down from B flat seven. Perfect. And then the second ending, I do that. I guess it's uh, E flat or E flat to B diminished to C minor F seven. Sounds good. Right. You want the melody or the chords? I'll play the chords. Let's feature you. Uh-oh. <laughs> okay. Thank mm -hmm. you. 
<laughs> Very nice. Sounding good. Likewise, boy, you're really getting around that that nylon string. That's pretty impressive. <laughs> it's not an easy, no child's toy. <laughs> uh, this one's not too hard to play, thank goodness. Yeah, yeah. 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 So this uh, playing online thing is not too bad. I found once in a while I'd hear a little click, and then I'd suddenly, just for a split second, I'd, I'd feel like I was somewhere else, like mm -hmm. a, a head or something, and then somehow it would sort of come yeah. back together. And there, there, there's settings in this software, which is really good, that allows you to trade a little bit of fidelity for a little bit of latency. Oh, you okay. Know? And I'm just getting into that aspect of it, so uh, right. next time, hopefully, I'll be able to you know, we'll be able to deal with those kind of issues. You know? Yeah. Well, we should try it again, just, you know, just for the sake of playing together. And oh, just absolutely. That would be well, fun. I hope sooner rather than later we can see each other in the hall at Humber or something well, or in my backyard or something, you know. Yeah, that would be great. Yeah. So um, <clears throat> anyway, I, I did visit your website and, and you do have a few blog posts up on there. Oh, a few. You yeah. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I, I must say you're a beautiful writer. Well, you know, you mean words? Yeah, words. Yeah, I want to read just a little line from one of your things here. Oh. The slowness of the fiberglass rod, that's fishing rod, seems more in tune to the movement of the creek and the cadence of the trout's casual rise to the surface to take a hatching mayfly. <laughs> and I read that, and I'm just like, I was there for a minute, you know? And I was... So, uh, you, you, you like old-timey things. You like, um... I'm an old guy. <laughs> yeah, you, you like, um, like, um the slower pace of life and you like um you know older gear and stuff like the way kind of yeah yeah like a fishing rod i mean a fishing rod's an amazing tool i mean well, you think of it i mean i can order uber i can uber fish over here in 20 minutes yeah but when you're in that small town i mean that fishing rod is everything right well yeah i part of my <clears throat> um i i just feel like there's we're constantly being pushed by um, marketing, you know, constantly. And whether it's fly, rod, fly fishing rods, you know, with the latest uh, high <laughs> modulus graphite, like fast, you know, or, or, or what it is, it could be anything, you know. And I just, so part of my reason for kind of, you know, going back to fiberglass rods or even playing old re you know, revamped amps. From oh, yeah, this is an audio podcast. People can't see, but right now there's a reel-to-reel -reel directly <laughs> behind Roy. Yeah, so I, I like to record analog, and I, I've got my two of my favorite guitar amps are uh, repurposed from old uh, film of sound movie projectors, so tube technology. And uh, I just, so part, I don't know, part of my, uh, it's, I don't know, I guess I'm, I'm just, it's my way of, sort of pushing back, I guess, against all of the uh, marketing hype and everything that, that constantly comes at us, that, that I, sometimes I find it a little oppressive. Mm. So I, uh, uh, plus I think, you know, when you have to interact, like with these reel-to-reel -reel recorders, you know, if I have to set the tape up, first of all, the tape's expensive, and I have to set the thing up and I have to cue it, and then when I go to record here at home, 
it's it's almost like being in a studio. Mm. So it, it it does change the experience. It's different than just playing into the computer, mm. where if you mess up, you go, oh, okay, I'll hit the button and start again. You know, so it it um, and I think the the blog post that you're referring to, I was maybe uh, referencing a studio over in England. Mm -hmm. uh, forget the name of the town now. Bristol, maybe. But they had they went back and they bought all of this analog gear from studios in the southern states, like from, from Memphis. And, uh, you know, the old preamps and the old uh, uh, decks and, and everything, and, and, you know, completely uh, fixed them up. So they built this whole studio over there that's completely 100% analog. Hmm. And there's no isolation. They're using old ribbon mics and the, the same old tube compressors and everything that they used back in the day. And, uh, you know, on, on the surface, you can look at that and say, oh, yeah, well, it's kind of, you know, a neat kind of retro experiment. But what it does, and, and when they interviewed the musicians that recorded there, they said, oh, man, this really changes everything because everybody is involved in the process in a much different way, like the musicians, the engineer, you're interacting with this gear, you got to know where to put the mics, you know, they were talking about the, the cold side of the mic and the hot side of the mic, and, mm. and, and they were recording, they'd start with one mic for a band, and then try and position it in such a way that would allow them to capture everything in the band, and then if they had to go to an, another mic, they would. Mm. <clears throat> and. Uh, I, I don't know. It's just a, a different experience, I guess, and and I kind of I kind of like that. It's interesting, like you know, it, it does change how we relate to one another. Yeah. Uh, like the musicians, uh, you know, uh, every new piece of technology. I mean, right now here's you and I, uh, talking on a chat on a video window. You yeah. know. But uh, you know what creating music is like, where engineers producing with computers and stuff. I mean. It just it changes the who is in the band or who is in the group who is communicating who, I mean everything about it. Yeah, it's a, it makes you wonder what the next iteration is going to be. Right. You know. Yeah, and I, I like uh, the analog stuff too. I think Mary's quite well with the uh, with the the latest recording technology and. I appreciated that you stuff. said that in your article too, because so often it seems like uh, it's always one side or the other. You know, like those guys in England that are just analog, right? Right. Yeah. Uh, but I have like, <clears throat> you probably noticed like the, the guitar pedals they build now are amazing. Yeah, yeah. Incredible. I got this reverb pedal. It's uh, made by a company called Kaitlin Brad. And they took a plate from a studio in San Francisco, a plate reverb. And I guess that particular studio is somewhat renowned for the, the reverb. And anyway, they, they've somehow modeled it and put it in a pedal and it sounds fantastic. Mm. Yeah. So, and are are you releasing this? Are you doing the home recording kind of releases? Uh, no, I haven't gotten that far yet. Yeah. Just it's mostly just for <clears throat> my own kind of documentation and like like I said, I'm trying to work on other you know other types of tunes or different ways of playing. So I'll, I'll kind of use use it for that mostly. Mm. So it's kind of working into developing what maybe the next Roy Patterson album might be. <laughs> well, that'd be nice. I mean, I haven't gotten that far along. Yeah. Um, I do have two two reel to reels. One is a, 
It's an old TIAC uh, A3440, which I guess a bunch of reggae, famous reggae records were recorded on that machine. And it's not bad. It's, it's kind of noisy, uh, but it's, you know, it, it has a thing. But I got this other, uh, it's just a two-track machine. It's a Revox made by Studer. And Ooh. the fidelity on that machine is really fantastic. So I, if I do try and do something, you know, as a release, then I, I would probably use that machine. Mm. Yeah, it does sound good. I would love to hear it. That guitar sounds really good. <laughs> yeah, it's not bad. Uh, I'm actually putting another telly together right now because I, I miss the Bigsby because I, I always played Gretsch's for a long time. And I miss the Bigsby, so... Nice. <laughs> So uh, I had one last question for you, um, and I would just ask you, what, is, what does Sonny Greenwich mean to you? Oh, Sonny, wow. <clears throat> um, I'm, a, I'm a huge fan of Sonny yeah. uh, as well, and, uh, you know, obviously very special uh, to many, many people. But yeah, Well, yeah. Sonny, uh, I mean, obviously he was an innovator. Yeah. You know, he had uh, assimilated the concepts that, Coltrane and others were exploring at that time in the 60s. He assimilated that on the guitar, I think, before anyone else. Uh, mm. And uh, he, uh, Sonny claims that he uh, came about that uh, through his own means that was different than the way Coltrane arrived. Um, he talked about uh, how he was studying painting and they were studying cubism and he began looking at the fingerboard as a cubist image. <clears throat> hmm. and he, So he started thinking about getting from one place on the fingerboard to another through the series of these, these blocks or these cubes or these geometric shapes. And uh, it makes a lot of sense. Um, and it's certainly, uh, uh, you know, supported by the way he, he plays modal music. Uh, the other thing about Sonny, which I, I don't think he gets enough credit for, is his composition. I mean, he's a melodic monster. Mm. You know, his tunes are just so evocative. And, you know, you know I, I don't know a lot of his tunes, but just I, if I just think about some of the melodies, you know... It's amazing. You can hear it in your hands. It's nice. Yeah, it's nice. and he, uh, you know, and there was a lot of. Uh, uh, so I, I, well, I don't know. I'll probably get some raised eyebrows, but I don't care. Um, <clears throat> this I see jazz music as part of a much bigger uh, world music that. Um, has uh, commonalities with other uh, systems of music where there's a large improvised component. And, you know, with jazz we have the, the, the rhythmic, the African sensibility, uh, you know, in terms of how we approach rhythm and how we think about rhythm in a very hierarchical way, you know, and resting on a pulse and, and all that. And then we have the large improvised component. And you could... You could say that, you know, once you start uh, changing those two components or watering them down or whatever, then you, you start watering down the music as a whole. But there's also another 
component to the music, which I think is, uh, is valid, and that's a spiritual component. And uh, it doesn't, it's kind of difficult to talk about because that means different things to different people. But certainly if you look at the history of the music, there was, uh, of African music in general, there was a connection, a strong connection with the African American church. Mm-hmm. And, uh, <clears throat> and I think that that uh, connection to some kind of uh, spiritual component uh, was not necessarily limited to that. It was, it, you know, it, it's, it's sometimes expanded into other areas of spirituality. Maybe mm-hmm. associated with more Eastern uh, meditative uh, uh, practices, or uh, and I think Sonny was very much aware of that. And uh, when I interviewed him, he he talked about mysticism and his relationship to uh, mysticism and what he thought about uh, how that related to his music. Mm. And it was he was very clear about it. It wasn't. There was nothing new agey or floaty or flighty about it. It was, it was very clear, and it was very clear that he had done a lot of work, a lot of studying, a lot of reading, and a lot of practicing. Mm. And uh, so I, I think Sonny, for me, is, is someone that is uh, kind of uh, much more expansive mm. than people give him credit for. And you know. is, is spirituality a part of your musical practice, would you say? Is there a relationship? Um, well, I think I think with anybody, the the potential is there to have it become a spiritual practice. You know, uh, I think if you, uh, well, if if you look at the historical uh, word mysticism and what it really means, I mean, most people associate it with magic or religion and stuff like that, but it really means an open study of the laws of nature. So uh, it's like an aligning. And aligning with the with natural law, mm. and if you think about <clears throat> how jazz, if you think about improvising, um, and you think about uh, you know connecting with something that you're hearing, or connecting with something that's somehow floating around in the universe or the ether, and then it, expressing that, you know in some personal way, I think that that's a mystical process. Hmm. Um, Plotinus, the Greek philosopher, uh, alluded to it. He said, uh, harmonies unheard in sound lead us to the music of another kind. And I think he was referring to that, you know, you, it's possible to visualize something or orally visualize it. You hear it, even though there's no sound, you hear it, and then that can lead you to, uh, you know, a different quality of music or a different quality of expression. Sounds like something Miles Davis would say. Oh, well, you know, maybe I, I, I don't really know, but, but I, yeah, I've thought about that. I, I don't know to what extent, <clears throat> you know, I'm able to, to realize any of that, but. Mm. I think do you ever try to help your students to realize something like that? Or do students ever come to you looking to realize something like that? I, I never bring it up. I, I do give them exercises to get in touch with, with what they're hearing in their mm. heads. Mm. Um, this one exercise I'll do where I'll just... <coughs> excuse me. I'll have them play a chord. And, and then maybe 
sing a note, like the top note, for example. And then I'll just get them to listen to where they hear that note moving, or what's being suggested by it. And uh, sometimes they, they get it right away, and then sometimes I've had some students that don't hear anything. Mm -hmm. And that was, I think, uh, what's the word? It was uh, <coughs> illuminating. You don't okay. hear melody. Why is that? Well, there's not much melody around in popular music anymore. Mm -hmm. So that was revealing. And then uh, I had a student once who had been studying a lot of theory and, and a lot of uh, stuff about chord scale relationships and he was trying to kind of cram all of these scalar ideas into playing on chord changes and I said well you can't you know you have to put things in context you know if it's a ballad maybe you have more time to play on a chord but you got to step back from that and let's see what you're hearing so I I kind of got him to do this exercise where you just playing a note and trying to hear the next note and then move to that note without any thinking about a scale or anything. And uh, it took him about three lessons and then he came in and, and he got it. And he was playing music and it sounded beautiful. Mm. He was like in the moment, he was, he was connecting and I think it scared the daylights out of him. Because the really? next time he came in, he wouldn't go near it. He was back to trying to cram all these uh, scales and stuff in. And, oh. and I think there, were, there was absolutely no, there were no signposts there. It was just, this mm. is what I'm hearing, and I'm trying to go for it. Mm. And I guess it, it was, it could be, I could see where it would be a little frightening. Like, you don't have a safety net anymore. You don't have your scale or your... Yeah. yeah. It can be hard not to move. Yeah. Like, uh... I find some students physically need to keep doing something. They feel like they always have to be doing yeah. something, you know? Yeah. So, I mean, in, in that sense, I, I think that that process, you could call it a spiritual process or a mystical process, I, whatever that is. Um, I, I don't speak to students about it in those terms, but sometimes I will try and get them to just get in touch with what, what it is they're hearing or feeling and try and, and, and find, and I, I'll say, like, I was fortunate enough to have a few lessons with John Abercrombie. Wow. Yeah, it was great, and uh, the thing that I really took from John was that it's okay to have an intuitive approach, and you can still bring a discipline to that, and, uh, he certainly played that way. You know, it's like every time he plays, it's like the first time he's ever played it. Mm. You know, and mm. it's very expressive. Oh, Sonny had that feeling too. Sonny, eh? absolutely. When he put yeah. his hands on the guitar, it looked like the first time he played yeah. the guitar. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But, yeah, oh, man. Oh. Yeah, so... That's so cool. That There is such a freshness to what you describe, you know? I think it's a little different than, uh, you know... Uh, I mean, I... I I, I never had a lot of chops, you know, I always feel like I never have enough chops and um, but sometimes I'll, I was thinking that my favorite players don't necessarily have a lot of chops either, like Jim Hall or, or Bill Frizzell or, or, you know, some people like, like that that don't display a lot of, uh, 
you know, fast technique or, or you know, mm. the ability to play a lot of fast notes and stuff. But it always seems to sound right in the moment. It always seems to sound like the best thing that you could possibly do there. Mm. Yeah. Oh, I, you know, I call that uh, musical truth. Oh, okay. You know? Yeah. Like, uh, you know, you know, I feel spiritual about music too. I, I definitely do. And, uh, like musical truth is definitely one of my ideas. Like, it's like, you know, you hear a song for the first time by say Duke Gellington mm. and you're like, Oh yeah, that's almost sounds like I've heard it before. Right. Or like the choices. Yes, that is the right next note or that is the right phrase. Yeah. And it just sounds true. And it's, it's like almost like this true music is there. And if you can only just access it, yeah. you know, and Ellington to me is a master of musical truth. Oh Yeah. And I think yeah. that's what Plotinus was referring to when he when he made that quote. Mm. You know, the music of another kind. Yeah. Mm. Well, I think we should play one more tune and uh, and call it a night. It's been such a pleasure to yeah, talk likewise. to you. It's, it's yeah. fun to interact with somebody. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Nice it's... to see another human guitar. Well, uh, what do you feel like playing? Ah, oh, jeez. Well, we've done a minor, we've done a ballady major. How about something Latin or medium sure. up or like a bossa nova sort of thing? Sure. Anything in mind? Uh, how about? How about triste? Uh, um. Or wave or uh, or meditation. More. Yeah, what key do you do trace then? You probably do it in B flat, right? B flat or A. Oh, you do it in A? Sure. I'll give it a shot in A. Great. Yeah, it sounds better in that key. Definitely. The original Brazilian keys were all in guitar keys. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Yeah, um, uh, it's been a while, but I'll just give it a shot. If I mess okay. up, my apologies up front. So. Uh, you got, you're going to take the melody and all that? Sure, if you like. Okay. Okay. So, we're in A, right? Okay. Put that tempo? Yeah.
<laughs> Something like that. Something like that. <laughs> okay, thanks, Roy. Thank you, All Nathan. Right. It's great. Great.